Take your Bibles this evening and turn to John 21. John 21. And uh, we're coming down to the last two verses of the, the Gospel of John. We've uh, been uh, in this uh, particular study for a couple of years now. I think it would have gone another year if I hadn't started doubling up uh, to Sunday evenings. But uh, uh, about a year ago, I did start doubling up uh, on uh, on Sunday morning and Sunday evening. But uh, so uh, it's about the, well, let's see, I got number 118. Okay, that's the number of... <laughs> And uh, I think we'd uh, find that uh, we could probably keep going here in the Gospel of John much more that we could uh, see here. And that's what uh, our uh, message is is about even tonight as we uh, look at God's Word is truth. Now, as Baptists, through the centuries... We've insisted that the Bible is our sole, ultimate, written authority for Christian faith and practice. Uh, We've resisted those who claimed otherwise, even popes and kings and bishops and pastors and teachers and so forth. Both religious and secular powers have persecuted Baptists uh, for this commitment to the authority of the Bible. But as we come to uh, the last verses here of the Gospel of John... Uh, John uh, saw the contents of his gospel as adequate for uh, comprehending the gospel of Jesus Christ and a sure foundation for the exercise of saving faith. Now, if you recall back in uh, chapter 20, verse 31, uh, he wrote under inspiration, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Uh, John saw that his record of the gospel of Christ was true, and what uh, many documents were written in the period following the earthly ministry of Christ, only those documents confirmed as Scripture are infallibly true. Now, other documents might contain some truth, uh, but only the revelation of God's word is truth. It is this truth upon which our faith stands. And what is the importance of divine truth even in our own day? Uh, so we want to consider what John has testified of his own biblical record and see if we can understand a great, in a greater fashion the wonder of the divine truth given to us in God's word. Notice, first of all, a human witness to divine truth a human witness to divine truth. Jesus had just finished a loving yet firm dialogue with Simon Peter. It was a time of restoring him to usefulness in the work of Christ's kingdom. Uh, In this dialogue, Jesus declares that all who belong to him serve at his pleasure. Uh, He told Peter of his future martyrdom, his future death, uh, and how he would or that he would be dying uh, for his faith. And then Peter again asked about John, who happened to be following close at hand, and Jesus told him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? 
follow thou me. Now, John explains in verse uh, 24, uh, excuse me, uh, yeah, in verse 24, uh, this is the uh, disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. The words, these things there, which he mentions as a reference to the whole gospel. In humility, John does not even mention his name in relation to his gospel writing. But he is satisfied to be called the disciple or a disciple. He loved that simple yet profound term which describes the follower of Jesus Christ. And as a disciple of Jesus, John had the privilege of writing a document to give an accurate record of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he wrote not to merely improve mental comprehension, but to declare truth that sinners might believe and be saved for eternity. Now, some would point out, you know, but uh, John's just a man. How could he make a claim for writing truth that would stand for eternity? Well, we all agree that John was just a man. He was mortal in every way that we are. But in the process of writing, John received revelation from the Holy Spirit. He did not write as we would write, even in what we call inspired moments. You know, we might say, well, I was inspired to do that. (laughs) Uh, That's not the same kind of inspiration. Uh, He wrote under the distinct influence and guidance of the Holy Spirit, and he wrote the very word of God to man. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, the reality in his witness. John recorded some phenomenal things. Uh, He spoke of miracles, and uh, he spoke of raising the dead. He talked about healing the blind. Uh, He even talked about Christ's resurrection. That's miraculous. Was it just hearsay? Was John just drumming up some fairy tales to stir the imaginations of those who might read this gospel? Well, the apostle uses this word here. Uh, this, deci- this is the disciple which testifieth. Uh, and then in other places throughout the scripture, you find him using the words bear witness. You'll find those, that phrase bear witness throughout his gospel and in other biblical writings in the, the letters uh, of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. It's, uh, and even a revelation. But it's common, it's a favorite phrase here, for John wants his readers to know that he speaks with the authority of one who has truly seen and heard firsthand what is written. His, his is an eyewitness account of Jesus Christ. It's believable because it, be, it comes with the authority of this testimony, uh, his testimony as an eyewitness. This is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. The word testifieth there is the same word in other places that is translated bear witness. Same word. So John continued this theme in his first epistle, First John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. He said, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and here's the word, bear witness, 
and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then in 1 John chapter 4, and verse 14, it says, And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Revelation chapter 1 verse 2 says, Who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things that he saw. So here we have an eyewitness. And we notice his various expressions to help us understand that this written word is one of the uh, of a first-hand witness. You know, things can uh, kind of get distorted sometimes. If you tell what happened, uh, at a certain time, and then you tell somebody else, and they tell somebody else, and they tell somebody else. You remember that old game of telephone? You know, how you go around and you, and it all gets completely changed by the time you get around. Well, here, this is the eyewitness. This is the first hand witness that you have. Heard, seen with her eyes, beheld, handled, and, uh, yet John's Gospel is a very human book, and by this I mean you find John's own record and experiences of Christ recorded. He's a very careful reporter of all that he saw and heard and experienced, and yet at the same time it's a divine book. All that John wrote was infallibly directed by the Holy Spirit, and when John wrote, he wrote with all the authority of a man guided perfectly by the Holy Spirit to deliver an authoritative message concerning Jesus Christ. So we have the reality in his witness. Secondly, we have the record of his witness. Now we know that on one of Moses' trips uh, to the top of Mount Sinai, he received the Ten Commandments, wrote uh, where God wrote the law on stone tablets. And John did not experience such remarkable handwriting from God. John penned it with his own hand. He said, this is the disciple which wrote these things. So we have him saying that, that he wrote these things. How did he write these things? Well, in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 21, it says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The word of God is not a myth. Uh, it's not just a mere record of oral trans, uh, traditions. Uh, the scriptures are not of human origin from the past. They were not invented by man. They were not transmitted by man. They were not preserved by man. And the verse there in Second Peter tells us that the writers were moved along in their thoughts by the Holy Spirit, and one of the class, and that's one of the classic passages in the Bible that explains the principle of inspiration. God's Spirit so influenced the minds of these various scriptural writers that their thinking was moved and carried along by Him. What they in turn wrote were the very words of God. And Christianity is built not only upon an eyewitness account of the apostles, but upon something even more important than that, the inspired word of God. Now, here we see the wonderful preserving work of the Holy Spirit. 
When you consider that this book, the Bible, contains 66 different books written by at least three dozen different human authors over a period of 1,500 or so years, covering every conceivable topic necessary for living and for eternity, yet the truth of God runs consistently through it. It stands as a solitary, authoritative, objective record of the revelation of God to humanity. And this word given by God did not come by just human will. Yes, humans were involved. And even their personalities show uh, on these pages. But the superintending of it was the Holy Spirit. And so that we might have divine truth to lead us to eternal life. So we have the reality in his witness. We have the record of his witness. And thirdly, we have the reliable uh, in, reliable in his witness. Now, just in case we have second thoughts about all that John wrote, he adds the, the, uh, the phrase there at the end of verse 24, and we know that his testimony is true. Some think this may have been a bit of a postscript added by some Ephesian elders who knew John so well. Others would say that John expressed this himself, and regardless, the issue is that it expresses the reliability of the gospel of John as the foundation of faith in Jesus Christ. I don't believe anyone here knew John personally, okay? None of us knew him personally. Uh, nor did our relatives in the last few hundred years. But his record was recorded some over 1,900 years ago, and what was truth 1,900 or so years ago is still true today. It's just as true today as it was back when John wrote it. Truth never changes. Now, some ideas will change, theories will change, postulations will change, but truth will stand forever. Isaiah 40 and verse 8 says, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And so this truth we must accept by faith. Since none of us knew him, none of our relatives knew him, we take it by faith. The Bible is a faith book. Uh, we can diligently attempt to prove the Bible, and rightly so, yet with, when all said and done, it's only by faith that we believe it is the only truth of God. Now, we can trust in what others write today. Uh, you know, when a doctor scribbles a prescription upon a little piece of paper, we trust that it's accurate uh, in what uh, the record, uh, it records for our use. Now, you probably can't read it, uh, sometimes the doctor's handwriting has been notorious for not being able to be legible, but they must have a special cl class for a pharmacist uh, in reading a doctor's handwriting, I think. But uh, we trust that it's true. We trust that it's the right prescription for what we need. Uh, we uh, read textbooks. Uh, and we accept the statements offered as fact. Now the problem is textbooks are getting unreliable. You can't always trust what uh, uh, the writers are writing in the textbooks, even of our children. 
Uh, we read news reports. Well, are they reliable? Well, we trust they are, but, you know, there's a certain amount of trust, but that's been a real problem these days, hasn't it? What about the re- weather re- forecast? Can you trust that? Well, maybe for the next few hours or maybe for tomorrow, but beyond that, we have some skepticism these days. And yet none of these things has the seal of the Holy Spirit on them. We believe them to a certain extent by the use of our human reasoning abilities. And quite often people fail to exercise much of their reasoning powers and consequently they accept even fallacies as fact. You know, this idea of the of evolution is accepted as fact. You hear them talking on the news reports and so, well, this uh, they found such and such that was probably millions and millions of years old, just like it, it's, it's fact. People don't question these things. Many governments have been overthrown or brought into dictatorships through the use of propaganda. People accepted what was written as true without carefully sifting through the error. But you know, when it comes to the Bible, we must recognize it has stood the test of time as a book that is vitally important to the human race. And yet this kind of recognition is not adequate for believing its message. Many people will admire the Bible, but they won't embrace it as truth. And while we can accept things, many things, through the use of human reasoning, we can embrace the truth of the Scripture, particularly the gospel of Jesus Christ, only through the means of God-given revelation. The Bible is a divine book, and as such requires divine revelation to understand its message and its content. When I talk revelation, I'm I'm not talking about he's going to reveal something new to you but he's going to give you an understanding of what is being said here when you exercise faith in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul goes to great length in uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 to explain that truth. The natural man cannot understand the Scriptures. The unsaved man doesn't understand... You know, he knows the words. He uh, He might say, well, yeah, I've heard of that person... But to understand the truth of the gospel, the truth of, of God's word, must only can only come through the real revealing work of the Holy Spirit. The spiritually darkened mind of man does not accept what the Holy Spirit has given in the word, for spiritual truth can only be grasped through spiritual means. The revealing work of the Spirit. Even as we sang a moment ago, I have come from the darkness. How'd you come from that darkness? You came through to that, from that darkness through the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. So John gives us a human witness. It's a human witness to divine truth. And it is this truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that can lead sinners to faith in Jesus Christ alone. Has the record of John's gospel or other portions of God's word affected you in a saving manner. That's uh, always a question that needs to be asked because there may be someone who's never trusted Christ as their Savior. But notice, secondly, a thorough 
witness to divine truth. A human witness, but a thorough witness to divine truth. There are times that small phrases kind of pack big punches. And that's the case of two words in our text when he says, these things. John says that he was a was the disciple which testified of these things and wrote these things. Now we've already pointed out that these things is not simply speaking about the immediate context of John chapter 21, but the whole of his gospel. What John wrote was thorough. No, it doesn't cover every detail of Christ's life, does it? Not every detail is covered in John's gospel. It doesn't even record all of his miracles. There are some things that are recorded in the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Luke, and John, or Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, uh, which we don't have here in the Gospel of John. So he doesn't cover everything. Well, maybe we should be thankful for that. Uh, we would probably have to be studying this book a lot longer. <laughs> it might be somewhat overwhelming. To have a sort uh, through world of books to grasp what we need to know about Jesus Christ and his power to save. So just what did John cover in his gospel? And we've actually spent, you know, a couple of years, as I said earlier, working our way through this gospel. We started this study on January the 3rd, 2016, okay? And again, it would have been another year if I hadn't started doubling up, but... I would be the first to admit that there is yet so much more to learn from this book. Now, we could actually divide the Gospel of John into three categories. Who Jesus is, what Jesus Christ said, and what Jesus Christ did. So let's kind of just sweep through tonight. This is the end of the conclusion. We're kind of just putting this all together, so to speak. Notice, first of all, who Jesus Christ is. When we evaluate the gospel writers, we come to the conclusion that John's chief agenda is to declare the deity of Jesus Christ. He wanted the world to know that God had come near, that Jesus Christ is none other than the living God himself, clothed in humanity. He does this in various ways. He offers his own narrative comments and theological statements concerning Christ's deity, and then he uses the testimony of others to confirm who Christ is. And he also shows the actions and the words of Christ as being evident of his deity. And so as we begin with John's own statements concerning the deity of Christ, as well as those statements he records of what Christ spoke concerning himself, and I probably would say the first passage to which most would turn to explain the deity of Christ is in uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Here John declares Jesus had no beginning, that he created everything that exists, and that he is the light of God in the world. And he goes so far as to declare the word was God. Now, in an equally lengthy passage expressing the deity of God, we find John recording Jesus' own words concerning his equality with the Father. John chapter 5. Verses 19 through 47. And the Jews understood what 
Jesus was saying, for John comments that they were seeking to kill him because he was making himself equal with God. There are other passages which you do not find recorded in the other three Gospels that offer clear evidence of Jesus Christ's deity, found in John 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, uh, or not 9, 9, but in chapter 8, and, verse, and then also in 10. But in the last passage, our Lord goes so far as to say, I and the Father are one. Now, could you read or hear the record of John's gospel concerning the deity of Christ and then casually turn away and say, well, that he wasn't really God? No, I mean, if you're going to be honest, you're going to have to say, that's what the Bible says. Jesus was and is God. John continues explaining the deity of Christ by recording comments of others. He declared to Jesus, uh, uh, John the Baptist declared that uh, Jesus was the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Andrew and Philip were excited, and they proclaimed that they found the Messiah. They invited others to come see for themselves. Nathaniel uh, heard uh, Jesus describe his condition and position without benefit of ever seeing him. And so he said, Thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Uh, you remember the woman of Samaria who was comp- uh, confronted at the well by the Lord. She returned to her own village telling others that she had found the Messiah. Uh, other gospel writers record Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah, John tells Peter, speaking to Jesus, uh, uh, that he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, chapter 6. And greater than all the witnesses of the disciples and the followers is the divine witness. In the presence of a multitude, a voice came out of heaven, responded uh, to Christ's prayer in chapter 12. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So John is not one-sided in his theology of Christ. He, he gives attention to the humanity of Jesus Christ. And he, we find in chapter 1, it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, in that verse, John used a coarse-sounding term, that is flesh. But that was to help us understand that Jesus really was a human being, though at the same time he was God. He did not just appear in a type of body, but he was actual flesh. Actual flesh and bone, just like you have tonight. And he the, and the other disciples were able to gaze upon in all the radiant expression of Christ's glory. Now, most Jews would not think of putting flesh and the word flesh and the word glory together in the same sentence. One expresses humanity, the other expresses deity. And John was very careful in this gospel to record the times Jesus was being was wearied. He was tired. Because of the strain of his travels and demands of his labor, he spoke of actual acts of service performed by Christ in his human humanity by washing the disciples' feet. 
The passion of Christ in his physical, emotional, spiritual suffering in our place is recorded in chapters 18 and 19. So why did John go to such lengths to convince us that Jesus is both God and man? He understood that God could, only God could redeem sinners, and it required that God himself bear his own judgment against humanity. But as God, he could not suffer his judgment, so he became a man in the act of incarnation for the purpose of vicariously suffering for those he would save. So that's who Jesus Christ is, and we see it throughout this gospel. We also see what Jesus Christ said. Now, no gospel writer records all that Jesus said, whether in private or in, uh, to the multitudes. Uh, nor do all the gospel writers re- together record all that he said. Uh, we have uh, in verse 25, it says that, uh, uh, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if we were written every one of them, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. By the way, the original gospels were not red letter editions. <laughs> I don't know, you may have a red-letter edition of the Bible, but uh, uh, the original Gospels were not red letters. So I'm glad that the printers sometimes uh, add that helpful tool in our uh, modern Bibles. But as you th- thumb through the four Gospels, you would find interspersed of the author's narrative the conversations that Christ had with individuals or small groups. And uh, the longer... Uh, teachings of Christ. John follows the same pattern. And for our purposes, we confine ourselves to the teaching of Christ in John's gospel. I think there are a number of pivotal pivotal texts here that record the teaching of Jesus Christ. Uh, first one would be uh, in John chapter 3, teaching on the new birth. He explains the mystery and the miracle of being born of the Spirit and born from above. He tells Nicodemus, that the new birth is necessary for seeing the kingdom of God. It's an impossibility from man's perspective, and that it is a divine mystery in which you cannot fully explain. You can only see the effect of it. And that put Nicodemus on notice that all of his religious training and practice could not save him. He had to know the great mercy of God in the new birth and to even see the kingdom of God. Jesus commonly utilized normal commodities of life to teach spiritual truths. He spoke of living water in chapter 4. He talked about the bread of life in chapter 6. Those were to explain that Jesus Christ alone can satisfy the thirst and the hunger of our souls. So many pursue acts of service and religious rituals and even church affiliation as substitutes for living water and the bread of life. And so Jesus calls us to the reality that apart from him, we cannot enter into the kingdom of God. The Bible describes unbelieving man as living in spiritual darkness, being spiritually dead. Uh, Jesus explained that he, he is the light of the world, so that only in relationship to him can man deliver, be li- delivered from bondage, the bondage of spiritual darkness, John chapter 8. It's in this context that the Lord declared that only he can set you free from your sin. You do not have the power to deliver yourself from the curse of the fall and the bondage that clings to our human nature. 
but Jesus Christ sets us free. Sheep were common sights in Israel, weren't they? And so were shepherds. And so Jesus used the imagery of a good shepherd to explain some critical truths in John chapter 10. A group of shepherds might put their sheep together in an area for protection at night. But when the day came, the shepherd would call his own sheep by name and they would hear his voice and follow. Jesus tells us that's precisely what he does. And we see his effectual calling of sinners, calling us out of bondage in which we've been living and calling us to sonship as his followers. Make no mistake, the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Jesus assures every believer that those to whom he has given eternal life will never perish. No one could ever snatch them from out of his hand. And then, of course, he taught in short fashion that he is the resurrection and the life in John chapter 11 when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And we understand that uh, that gives us hope of eternal life as well. We find Christ teaching his disciples about true humility and service. He washed their feet as they gathered for the Passover feast in John 13. We're exhorted to live in such simplicity of service to one another rather than trying to climb over one another for recognition. John chapter 14 through John chapter 16, we find the upper room discourse. Uh, Jesus prepares his disciples for living without him. that is, his bodily presence. He explains that he alone is the way to the Father and that in his ascension into heaven, he was preparing a place for them. He teaches us about the Holy Spirit, who is equal member of the Godhead, who dwells in every believer, who alone can carry out the work of convincing the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. And we see our utter dependence upon Jesus Christ in teaching of the vine and the branches Jesus is the life of the believer, so in him the believer has all that is necessary to live in obedience before the Father. And then, of course, there was that great chapter, chapter 17. Christ's high priestly prayer on our behalf. Some of the clearest teaching on the continuing work of sanctification in our lives. Kind of serves as a compilation of of Christianity. We see everything... Uh, from the explanation of eternal life as knowing God through Christ to the fact that Christ fully completed the saving work the Father had sent him to do to the grace of God in choosing us and giving us the Son for his redemptive work. And we find assurance of our salvation bound up in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the continuing work of sanctification centered in our relationship on the revelation of God in his word and our mission to the world with the gospel is shown to be vitally connected to our sanctification. We also understand that the unity of believers express the vital unity that was found in the Godhead. So we've kind of hit some high points here. We've kind of reviewed what John was about. And we've been entrusted with a priceless treasure in this book, as well as the rest of God's word. How... We must be diligent and to read and to study this treasure, to feast upon its riches, to saturate our minds with its truth, to fill our hearts with its radiance, and to know the extent of God's grace shown to us through Christ. That brings us to what Jesus did. 
He came to this earth to accomplish the work of redemption, which the Father purposed before the foundation of the world. I heard someone who said that the one purpose Jesus had in mind in coming to this earth was to help us make it through my life. No way. Don't believe that. That's a false statement. That was not the one purpose that Jesus had, was just to help me make it through life. What a pitiful thought. He came to deliver us from the bondage of this life, to deliver us from the curse of the fall, to set us free from the penalty of, of judgment which we deserve, and then to reconcile us to God through the sacrifice of his own life. Well, that's a whole lot different than just helping me make it through life, isn't it? And above all things, Jesus entered in this world as the incarnate word to accomplish all that the Father had sent him to do, to glorify the Father in all things. He came as our mediator, and he accomplished this priestly work through his own bloody, atoning, propitiatory sacrifice at the cross. He made that declaration, it is finished, and not one drop of his blood was wasted, not one moment of his suffering was needless, nothing can be added to our salvation. We're saved through Jesus Christ alone who died on our behalf, and he rose from the dead in a great triumph for all eternity. I certainly hope each one here this evening has trusted Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And how foolish uh, we would be to try to add something what Christ has already finished. We must cast ourselves upon Christ and his merits, for that alone will suffice before God for righteousness. And so we find here that John offered a sufficient witness to divine truth in this gospel. There are those people who spend their lives trying to find the so-called lost sayings of Jesus, or they try to explain the hidden years of Jesus. No, John assures us that there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose, that even the world itself could not contain, that should be written. In other words, the Bible is a miracle of briefness in light of a divine subject. The world would have been filled with page after page of material explaining and declaring and illuminating us of our great Redeemer. But John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was selective, and what he wrote was enough. Enough for you and me to understand a very simple gospel truth that leads to eternal life. I was saved from a verse in the Gospel of John. It was enough. Even one verse was enough to bring me to Christ. But as you read and you hear the Gospel of John, you're either condemned because you've rejected the Christ of this Gospel, or you're humbled that such a mighty God would condescend to men of low degree to accomplish our redemption through Christ. There's hope for sinners living under the weight of condemnation. And so uh, the, the, the important thing is to flee to Jesus Christ. He bore the load of your guilt before the judgment of God, and he sets us free, and we're free indeed. What a wonderful book. Let's pray.